I it was like I thought that my fear was a bubble that I could pop if I if I pushed hard enough, you know. And so I I went for the most extreme option I could think of, and that's not at all how exposure therapy is supposed to work. Exposure therapy is incremental. It's um it's gradual. It's sort of carefully planned out. And this, this skydive was was a a horrible experience. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk with journalist and author Eva Holland, whose book Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear, comes out this week. The book explores exactly what fear is, what forms it can take, and what can be done to manage it in an effective way. Now, I've known Eva since she wrote for my Vagabonding blog more than 10 years ago, and I was one of the first people to interview her when advanced copies of her book became available many weeks ago. Since that time, the COVID-19 pandemic has come to reframe the way we all talk about fear. Last week in her email newsletter, Eva wrote, quote, I never imagined my book about fear would come out at such a terrifying moment in time. It's my sincere hope that some of the things I learned and tried to pass along might be helpful to people navigating this strange and scary new world, end quote. Over the course of our conversation, Eva and I talk about how people like soldiers and rock climbers deal with fear in high-pressure situations, but we also talk about fear as it affects normal folks, often in the form of phobias or post-traumatic anxieties or existential concerns. We talk about how intuition is influenced by fear and what happens to people whose brains don't allow them to feel fear. We also talk about therapeutic strategies that help people deal with fear, strategies like exposure therapy and beta blockers and a technique called EMDR. And we talk about how fear is in some ways a force that helps keep us safe and live richer lives. Our conversation starts by discussing how Eva came to write a book that blends science reporting and personal experience about fear. Let's listen in. So your book, Nerve, Adventures in Science and Fear, is sort of a combination of themes. There is is the science of fear in the book, but there's also a lot of personal information. It's sort of a blend of memoir and science. And in a sense, it's it's kind of a big idea book about fear. And I'm curious to know, how did you end up tackling a book about fear? Because I sort of know you from the travel writing milieu. Why did you choose to focus specifically on fear? You know, it was kind of a slow build um, to my interest in the topic. I'd been um, wrestling with my fear of heights for several years, basically since I since I moved to the Yukon a decade ago. I'd sort of, you know, I hadn't been an issue in the flatlands, <laughs> but uh, I have some some problems with exposed heights, as anyone who reads the book will see. Um, so I was struggling with that and sort of thinking about what that meant for me in terms of limitations uh, on my lifestyle here. And then I had a series of car accidents um, that left me with some some fears around driving on the highway. And then my mom died suddenly, and that was. Um, for reasons that I go into in the book, that was a, a lifelong fear that I had. I mean, you know, no kid wants their parent to die, but I was, it was very present in my mind because uh, my mom had been an orphan. Um, so I, it felt like these different fears were kind of coming together in my life in a way that would be interesting to look into. And then I realized maybe I could use my experiences to look at the broader questions that surround fear and how we experience it as human beings as well. It's an interesting combination of fears that you start the book with immediately because, you know, the idea of death is something that's sort of inevitable. It's sort of an existential fear. Um, but then something like fear of heights can be controlled in a way more so. Um, and so 
I'm, I'm curious, as, as a quick aside, was there fear involved in writing the book? Was there fear of, of uh, putting this into words? <laughs> yes, absolutely. It was, uh, all my friends joked while I was working on the draft about kind of the meta-ness of me being afraid of writing my, you know, when I was, you know, inevitably postponing getting started and um, people were like, oh, are you afraid to write your book about fear? And well, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was, it was a scary process, uh, to put so much of myself out there and, and to tackle, you know, the neurobiology of fear was felt like a big, um, reach for me. I I don't have a a strong science background, so that was a, that was scary in a different way. And then, you know, also just the fear of writing your first book. Um, yeah. Yeah. I I think there's an extent to which these big idea books, they're not written by scientists, you know, they're written, by journalists or other people of of an interest, and I think that makes them a little bit more accessible in a sense that you're you're talking about your own fears in such a way that people can read the book and sort of relate to or think about their own fears as they read about yours. Is that fair to say you think definitely that's my hope. you know I found when I was talking to friends or other people about it, everybody had their their thing that they brought up you know their their fear of balloons or heights or um, being, you know, a fear of that their food might be contaminated. Different. Everybody has a different hang up, it seems like. And, and um, we don't always talk about them very much, but, but my hope is that, that people with all sorts of different experiences with fear will find the book interesting or, or useful or useful is not quite the right word. It's not intended to be self-help, you know, but, but illuminating in some way. Well, we'll get into the the specifics of the fears that you confronted in your book, as well as the science behind fear in general. But a couple of quick asides for my listeners who might be a little bit Canada ignorant. Is Yukon basically the Canada version of Alaska? How would you describe Yukon? Yeah, I guess that would be an accurate description. We're right next door to Alaska. I'm about 120 miles from the Alaska border right now. Um, so we're we're much smaller than Alaska. Um Yukon is about the size of California, <laughs> um, but with 35,000 people instead of 35 million. Okay. And how did you end up there? I moved here to write. I, uh, I was sort of looking, you know, I was freelancing early on in my career and I was looking for a home base that would be sort of an adventure in itself. Um, and I have a cousin here uh, who comes up in the book a couple of times, uh, and I came here to visit him and then was like, yep, this is the one and uh, moved up here, moved up here in late 2009. Well, I've known you for a long time and I've always seen you as sort of a, a rugged, outdoorsy, you know, climbing mountains and canoeing rivers type person. So I was surprised that uh, you had a fear of heights, which you talk about quite a bit in the book. But before we get into that specific heights, there was a very, um, that specific fear there's a very charming um, detail in the end where you talk about how you put Stephen King's It in the freezer when you were reading Stephen King's horror book, It. is What's the story behind that? Yeah. So um, I'm, I've never been much for horror movies or books, uh, but I read It when I was probably 13 years old, as a lot of us do, I guess. And I had just, I was a big, big fan of the, the television show Friends. Uh, I was right in those sort of the Friends demographic in junior high when you know, the Rachel cut was taking over the world and everything. And, and on friends, there's an episode where Joey reads the shining and when he's not actively reading it, he keeps it in the freezer, uh, because then he's safe from it is his feeling. Uh, so I, I copied, I copied Joey and I kept it in the freezer when I was not actively working my way through the terrifying book. 
<laughs> I, I'm curious to know how many people did that. Like how many people watched Friends and just thought, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> but Yeah, I'm sure I wasn't the only one. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that underscores that fear, there's, there's an interesting complexity to fear because horror books and horror movies are watched or read um, to sort of have recreational relationship with fear. And then also outdoor activities, skydiving and rock climbing and other things are also engaged to sort of get a thrill out of fear. But there's a there's an interesting relationship between fear as entertainment and fear as actually a debilitating thing. And so we can sort of climb into that. You you talk about in your book, you talk about different categories of fear, specifically through your mom's death, through your fear of heights, and through your experience and and sort of post-traumatic experiences with car crashes. Is that is am I right? Are there any other big categories that are covered in your book? Yeah, no, those are the three sort of, you know, the the broad grouping of phobias trauma and and then what I would call sort of the existential fears around, you know, existence and death and stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I want to talk about what you found in sort of examining those things. But first off, let's let's sort of set a a, a grounding with the idea of what fear is. I mean, what is fear? Uh and obviously it is a fairly normal thing if if Joey on Friends deals with it. Um but what what is fear? How does it differ from anxiety? How is it described? Right. It's it's a more complicated question than you might think, but basically fear is our body's reaction to a perceived threat. Um and that that can mean the the bodily sensations of, you know, goosebumps or uh pupil dilation or uh accelerated heart rate. That's sort of the physical manifestation of of the the threat response. Um, and then there's also the, the emotional component of where you say to yourself, I'm scared. I feel afraid. I I don't feel safe. Um, and part of my task in the book was sort of understanding the relationship between the physical and the emotional components. Um, and then the other tricky thing around, you know, parsing the difference between say fear and anxiety is it, it comes down. A lot of the differences come down to our understanding of the threat. Um, people might say, you know, fear is, fear is how we feel when there's a true threat and anxiety is when we feel afraid of something where there is no true threat. Um, but that's really difficult, uh, because, because threats can be really amorphous. You know, if, if, you know, as anybody who's experienced anything sort of phobic understands the, the whole point of it is that, um, that your fear is, is largely irrational. Um, you know, maybe a shark will eat you, but but probably not, you know, almost definitely not. And, and yet you're not going in the ocean, for instance, or you're, or you're terrified when you do go in the ocean, even if there's other people all around you and no sign of sharks. So I think at one point I described phobias as sort of a miniature anxiety disorder. There are, there are really close relationships between fear and anxiety and between fear, anxiety and trauma. So it's, it's a complicated thing to, you know, as much as I like to set it up at the start of the book is like, here are these categories. It's it, there's there's all sorts of murkiness between them, and that's part of what I try to work through in the book. And are these fears something that come out of our own experiences as we grow up and 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 go through life, or is there a genetic component to how fears manifest themselves in people? They're still trying to figure that out. Uh, I think the the sort of pop culture assumption is that. Um, something like a phobia comes from a bad childhood experience, but they don't actually think that's generally the case, as far as I can tell. It's it's um it seems to be there seem to be different sources, but there's there's a potential genetic component definitely to what we fear. There's um 
potential evolutionary explanation. There, there is the sort of childhood experience explanation. Um, yeah, it's, it's been interesting to see what we know and what we don't actually on, on such what feels like a really fundamental topic, but, but actually the science of emotions, um, is still very much in progress. Yeah, you you brought up the idea of evolution. I've always sort of assumed, I'm not sure why, that there is a hardwired aspect to fear, that you know we're afraid of snakes or heights because our ancestors who were afraid of fear or snakes survived. Um, but you sort of suggest it might be more complicated than that. How so? Well, they do. I think they do think that there's a potential evolutionary component, certainly, especially with some of the more sort of primal fears. You know, they've done work on on monkeys that suggests that there's a hardwired fear of snakes built into them. So it would be logical that, that we have some discomfort with, uh, with snakes built in as well. Um, but there, be, be, there are phobias now that, that have nothing to do with ancient survival. Um, and then, and then there are phobias that, that do. And so it, it is interesting to, to think about, about where this stuff comes from. And evolution seems like part of the explanation, but not a, not a complete one. Well, I want to get into specifics again in a second, but are there has science advanced? I know, I mean, you go all the way back to Hippocrates. You you go you talk about a lot of historical examples. Has science advanced to the point that fear can be, if not cured, managed these days? Um, they're getting there. It's still, uh, I would say that's still a work in progress. Um, the treatments, um for phobias and anxiety are improving as, as they sort of um, increase in, in quantity. I would, I would bet that somebody with sort of unlimited resources and willingness to put themselves through things could eventually find a therapy that would work for them for say a phobia. But part of the issue is I think that, that different treatments don't work for different people. And, and often people might try one or try two, and then they just go back to trying to, to what's called avoidance, which is when you just try to avoid the trigger of, of your fear. Um, and so I think that's part of why, uh, phobias are hard to cure is because people are different and they respond to different treatments differently. And, and I discuss in the book that there's sort of an array of different approaches to trying to, uh, control these feelings, um, and I try two or three of them out in the book. <laughs> yeah, well, there's the idea of, of facing your fear, which is almost s- sort of mm-hmm. a, a truism, sort of a, a sort of a cliche now, and, and you literally do that. But let's start with the with the first category that you wrestle with in the book, which is the more existential fear that sort of came out of your, the death of your mother. Um, what happened in that thought process, and and what did you learn from that process when when your mom died? Yeah, it was, it was something that I expected. This sounds really simplistic, but I expected it to ruin my life. And I can only explain that by saying that my understanding of my mom was that she had been like absolutely fundamentally shattered by the loss of her parents. At uh, at a very young age, right? Yeah. She lost her mom when she was nine and her dad when she was 18. Um, And, and, and her dad was, I would say not exactly there for her after her mom's death in any case before he died. Um, he didn't do a great job on the, on the, the parenting after that, unfortunately. Um, he was obviously, you know, grieving himself. And, um, so she didn't have a lot of parental support growing up and, and it really affected who she was as an adult and, um, her sense of herself in the world. And I was obviously an up close witness to that. And so I felt, 
I sort of understood it as, as a, a life ruining event. And so when my mom uh, had a stroke when I was 33 and, and died suddenly, I thought, Oh, this is, this is it. You know, I'm, a, I'm about to become a total mess, uh, which I was for a while, but, but I didn't, um, but it wasn't permanent for me for various reasons, uh, including, including, you know, the love and support I had from my mom for 33 years. Uh, and so what I learned was about resilience, I guess. And, and that, um, ended up putting me in kind of a more peaceful place in terms of thinking about future, future losses. Nobody looks forward to terrible loss and grief, but I, I feel like I understand it better now. And I understand my resilience and my ability to move through those feelings, um, in a way that in some ways, um, I guess my mom couldn't, but I also didn't understand her resilience as well when I was younger. Um, and, and I think she was tougher than I gave her credit for. You use the phrase sad forever. You know, the idea that when you feel a loss like this, you just can't understand how you won't be able to be sad forever, which, which feels relatable. You know, my parents are, are both alive, but I'm not sure how I'm going to deal with the fact with what will happen when I lose my parents. And I'm, um, I'm much older than you were when you lost your mom. So was there a therapeutic component to this or was it just sort of a philosophical thing that you dealt with internally? I did see a grief counselor and that was really helpful. Um, I it mostly dealt with it internally. Just kind of, I tried to just go easy on myself for quite for a period of time. And uh, I, you know, I arranged to take a couple months off work. I, I tried to just, give myself time and space. And, and eventually I, you know, and I talked to friends, I had a few friends who had lost parents uh, in their twenties and thirties that I talked to a lot. And, and they said, you know, give it a year and then, and then you'll, you'll still be sad, but you'll be, you'll feel, you know, better. I, the, the main, the scary thing, well, one of the scary things about it was feeling sort of out of control and like I might do something really irresponsible in my, in my grief or something, you know, I felt like this kind of urge to burn things down. And, and that was a scary place to be in, um, to feel like you might do things you would regret later. Um, yeah, I made a one year ban on major life decisions. Huh. Was the advice you friends gave you the same advice you would give to people in general in, in dealing with this situation, which is such a normal human situation that doesn't really subtract by how devastating it can be when one loses a parent, especially um, at a younger age. Yeah, I think so. I've, you know, I've, I've since had other friends lose parents and then I'm in the, in the role of, of talking with them. And, and, and my advice is generally, you know, give yourself as much time as you, as you are able, give yourself permission to be, a mess. Uh, you know, sometimes we don't, as a society, we're not great at talking about grief and loss and, and particularly with adults who lose parents, I think it's not always seen as a, as a huge deal in a way, you know, people expect to be back at work, you know, right after the funeral and, and, mm. uh, but it's a, it's a really big, it will depending on your relationship with your parents, I guess, but it's a really big thing. Um, and so I, I sort of tell people, you know, society's not going to, necessarily give you permission to be as upset as you're going to be, but just, it's okay. It's okay to be as upset as you're going to be. Those sorts of fears, those existential fears, the, the, the fear of losing loved ones are, are, are fairly normal and, 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 and kind of hardwired to being human, but there's other fears that are maybe seen as a little bit less rational, like those fear of heights and, and fear of heights is a common thing. Um, but some people have it and, and some people don't. 
uh, and you talk about an incident on an escalator when you were young, when you first sort of got into your fear of heights. And then later on in, in sort of mountaineering situations, you came to term with your fear of heights. And so how did this fear develop and how, when did you come to the point where you realized that you wanted to do something about it? I didn't know that I was afraid of heights for a, a shockingly long time, which is funny because in, you know, in the book, I go through these various incidents when I was younger, where I was exposed to heights and freaked out, but I just didn't put the pieces together because it was such a rare event for me to be, you know, it at, at heights. <laughs> and I should, it should clarify for, for listeners. I'm, I'm fine on elevators, airplanes, generally bridges and balconies, as long as I feel like the railing is sort of sturdy and above my center of gravity. It's, it's when I feel like I can fall that my fear is triggered. So it's in a way it's quite specific, um, which is part of why I didn't know it was there. I think a lot of people who are afraid of heights, you know, can't walk across a bridge, for instance, or can't ride in an escalator, elevator rather. That I would have noticed sooner, I think, because those are sort of day-to-day things in a way that standing on an exposed mountain slope or, you know, the edge of a cliff aren't. And so when I did realize it, I did want to do something about it from the beginning because I had, I had moved to the Yukon. I had these new friends. We were having these adventures in the wilderness and I, I didn't want to have to, you know, bow out. I wanted to be able to play with my friends. Um, and I, and I couldn't essentially in certain situations. Uh, so I did want to do something about it, but I didn't, I, it was pretty ad hoc sort of self, self therapy for several years where I would just like, I was like, well, if I just keep trying to do things, I'll push through. Um, and I made some partial headway that way, but it wasn't until I sat down to do the book. Um, well, the, both things happened simultaneously. The, the prologue has an incident where I, I had a, what I would say is probably a full blown panic attack on an ice climbing trip. And I put my own life in danger and forced other people to risk their safety to get me out of the situation. I won't say too much more so people can read it for themselves, but it was, it was a bad, it was a bad scene. Uh, and I'd never, I'd always just embarrassed myself before. I hadn't, um, in my view, <laughs> um, I hadn't taken things that far before where I, where I was putting people's, you know, safety at, at, at risk. So that was one of the triggering, triggering incidents for wanting to write the book. And that was also where I drew the line and said, no, this isn't okay. You need to sort this out. Um, and that was when I started sort of with more determination and focus and information, uh, starting trying, trying to work through my fear of heights. This is where we sort of come into the idea of facing fears, right? Isn't this where you bring in the mm-hmm. the idea of prolonged exposure therapy, that there's actually a, a science or a therapeutic aspect to this? Yes. Yeah. Exposure therapy is, is um one of the one of the avenues for addressing your phobias. Uh I think it's less dominant now than it than it was a few years ago, but it is one of the major major avenues people can go down. Prolonged exposure therapy is one therapist's particular method. Um, but, but yeah, the, the broad idea of exposure therapy is systematically facing your fears in order to overcome them. And so in the book, you jump out of an airplane, right? You, you go through a few exercises, mm-hmm. uh, rock climbing and skydiving exercises where you literally are facing your fears. Uh, how did that work? How did, and how effective was it? <laughs> I can say that the skydive was totally ineffective. That was not a not what was suggested in the therapy books I was reading. I just that was one where I thought, okay, if I can, I, it was like I thought that my 
fear was a bubble that I could pop if I, if I pushed hard enough, you know? And so I, I went for the most extreme option I could think of. And that's not at all how exposure therapy is supposed to work. Exposure therapy is incremental. It's, um, it's gradual. It's sort of carefully planned out. And this, this skydive was, was a, a horrible experience. <laughs> if I'm being honest, it's sort of funny to look back on now, but it was, um, it was, the worst. <laughs> um, so that was my first attempt. And then I settled down and, and bought a workbook and did some more reading and, and the rock climbing was, um, what I tried to use as a more incremental approach, um, where previously when I had tried to climb, I had tried to push, push through my fear. Actually, the, the goal with exposure therapy is not to push through your fear. It's to stop it from, it's to stop your reaction from occurring eventually. And so you want to see, take these very baby steps and see if you can avoid a reaction and then go one step further next time and see if you can avoid a reaction. The idea is in the terms that it was explained to me um, is that you're trying to build a different structure in your brain because your brain has this one channel that it's used to firing on, which is the react to heights with a fear reaction with a fear response uh, channel. And you're trying to build a different path and get your, you know, your neurons accustomed to going down that path instead. So just climbing that exposed rock face in itself doesn't solve things until your brain process actually deals with it and, and comes to peace with it? Right, exactly. If, if forcing yourself to do it while afraid is, is, is no real victory, the, the, the aim is to try to stay calm and to not feel the fear in the first place. And did that work for you? It was, I'd say it was partially successful. Yeah, it was, um, it definitely improved things for me, but it wasn't, um, like a complete success. I'm, you know, I may not have kept going at it long enough. I'm not, I'm not sure. And I, and I was doing it without a therapist. I was doing it just with a workbook I bought at a, at a bookstore. So it was, it was kind of, um, DIY. Um, so I wouldn't like to say that, you know, exposure therapy didn't work for me or something because, because there's, there's trained professionals that might've done a better job at it, but, but yeah, it was, it was a very much a partial success for me. Do you go out and go rock climbing these days up in the Yukon? I haven't lately. No. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I did go for a hike this summer that I expect had one section that I expected to really scare me. I, I actually, I sort of thought I'd get through it on my hands and knees in tears and I was, uh, fine. That's good. Now in, in that section of the book, you talk about fear sweat and exercise sweat and just this idea of sort of i guess chemical level fear can you can you explain that a little bit right yeah so we have this idea you know so many it's interesting how many kind of expressions floating around in the popular conversation are related to fear and sort of truisms about fear but we one of them is that we talk about the idea of smelling fear right like like a predator can smell your fear um and we we can smell fear as it turns out um, but what we, what we do is we smell fear on each other and it's a, it's not a predator thing. It's a prey thing. So prey species, um, emit fear pheromones that their fellow, you know, their fellow mouse or rabbit or whatever can pick up on. And it's a silent warning signal. So if a, if a mouse is crouching in a field and there's a, an owl overhead, the other mice might sense these fear pheromones rolling off this little mouse. And, and then they will know subconsciously, of course, that, that they need to react accordingly. And so what this woman that I write about in the book proved is that humans have this too. We can, our, it's not a difference in smell per se, but our, 
olfactory sensors can tra- transmit signals to our brain that allow our brain to distinguish between fear sweat and exercise sweat on other humans. And so she proved using skydiving as a tool that, that, uh, that the amygdala, which is um, one of the key brain, brain structures involved in the uh, threat response, uh, that the amygdala can, can sense uh, when another human is emitting fear pheromones and will, will react accordingly and trigger your own fear reaction, which I think is so cool. It's really interesting. And, and does this tie in at all to the intuition you discuss elsewhere in the book? I mean, you talk about what is probably a fairly normal experience for a woman about just sort of a creepy guy following you and you're not really sure what's happening, but your intuition is telling you that you need to remove yourself from this situation. Yet you also bring up examples of, of men, like a, a specific man who went into a convenience store once and just felt like something was wrong. So he left and it turns out that was being robbed. So how does intuition figure into this equation? Yeah, I think what we're learning as we as we understand more about brain signals and, and sensors is that that we what we call intuition or a sixth sense or a hunch or trusting your gut that there might be more to it than that than than we realize. Um, for instance, you know, I don't, I don't know for sure. The book about the the book about the man who went into the convenience store was written in the '90s, long before this fear pheromone research was done, and I would. I would suspect that part of his intuition that he needed to leave that store in the moment was related to the fear pheromones coming off the clerk behind the counter who was being held up at gunpoint unbeknownst to the man. I I think that that's a likely link. Uh, You know, it's not definitive in that case, but, but yeah, I think, uh, I think we're learning that, that our bodies understand more about the threats around us than we uh, consciously realize. And that's part of what we call intuition or, you know, that, that sixth sense that's so often tied to fear. So there's an extent to which intuition might be scientifically correct much of the time. An extent. Yeah. An extent. I, I do sort of caution in the book that, you know, trusting our guts can, can sometimes lead us to bad places because, we're all flawed humans full of biases and, and false assumptions about each other. But, uh, but yeah, there's an extent to which I think uh, intuition has a scientific basis. Yeah. That almost sounds like they could be a, like a science fiction movie where certain people have little intuition uh, readers where <laughs> they, can, they can be scientifically 100% accurate that they're not being paranoid and there are actual dangers. Um, that, that yeah. actually, science fiction possibilities came up in my mind a lot as I was reading your book just because – I think any time that there are human processes that don't have clear scientific explanations, you really get a little bit, I guess, imaginative and uncertain. Absolutely, yeah. I could, uh, I could see that too. The, um, you know, some people who have been trained or, or somehow, you know, altered by the military to, to sense, uh, to understand their fears and the threats around them more accurately than the rest of us. That would, uh, yeah. Well, you bring up Navy SEALs. This is sort of an aside, but you bring up Navy SEALs. Uh, has the military studied fear, you know, just in the interest of making more effective soldiers and may, having soldiers make more effective decisions? Yeah, this woman who was doing the skydiving research was, was funded partly by the U.S. military because they wanted to understand how fear works and, and fear and decision-making and threat assessment in their, in their soldiers, and specifically Navy SEALs. Um, and what they found was that everybody's sort of working assumption had been going in that uh, the best seal would be somebody who's sort of impervious to fear. 
But what they found was actually that's not the case and that imperviousness to fear can, can lead to recklessness. And what they, what they need is, is somebody who makes an accurate threat assessment, who doesn't underestimate or overestimate the threats around them, who's, whose fear response is only triggered when it's appropriate, essentially. Um, and otherwise, otherwise you're, you're jumping at shadows or you're too brash, too reckless, not seeing threats where they exist. And, and the, the happy medium is somebody like, like we discussed in this sci-fi scenario who can, who can, uh, combine intuition and, and, you know, the brain sensors and, and all the rest to, uh, to make an accurate call. Well, I want to get to the idea of fearlessness in a second, but first I want to address sort of the third category, which is kind of PTSD type fear. And in in your situation, it manifested itself after a series of car crashes, often involving weather, but not always involving weather. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there's the idea that, that trauma can sort of train us to fear certain situations. What's your experience with those car crashes and how did you come to, um, to try and cure your PTSD related to these car crashes. Right. So I had, well, I had an earlier crash in high school that wasn't as sort of impactful on my emotional state. I sort of got over it, which is, which is what um, happens most of the time when we have a traumatic experience is we, we get over it with a bit of time. And Um, there were no big physical injuries in any of these crashes. Is that correct? No. Right. I, I walked away virtually uninjured from all of them, but I would say the, the scale of each of them was such that I could have been, could have been killed in any one of them, but I, but I sort of miraculously wasn't, um, which was, uh, so, and then I had three more big, you know, vehicle wrecking crashes in a span of two years. Um, and that each one kind of left a stronger, one of them was a, a car, a truck hit me um, on the highway, he he came across the yellow line and that one left me, um, still sort of confident in myself, but, but lacking trust in other drivers to to stay in their own lane and not, you know, hit people. Um, which is, you know, trust is a big part of making the highway system and the, the road system and society in general work. Um, and then the next two were both rollovers in winter weather where I was the only, driver involved. And those, um, were both kind of freak events, but ultimately really eroded my confidence in myself. And so I was left frightened of other drivers and not trusting myself and really, um, really kind of having sort of flashbacks and, and, and scary feelings and, and reliving the sensations of the cars rolling over, um, when I was driving, uh, which is not, not great for driving on the highway. Um, so in that case, the therapy that I selected is called EMDR. It's a eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's a technique that was developed in the late 1980s in California. It was quite controversial for a long time. And part of the reason for that is that they still, they still don't know why it works. And, and how, um, do, how does it work? What, what exactly right. is MD, so, EMDR? Uh, how is it administered to a patient? Right. So there's uh, different therapists use, originally it was um, wagging her, the the therapist who developed it originally wagged her fingers back and forth in front of a patient's eyes. The idea is to get the patient's eyes moving rhythmically left to right um, while they undergo a series of questions and discussion about their traumatic experience, Uh, which sounds pretty wacky. Um, 
but they think that the eye movement does something to activate our sort of memory storage functions. Uh, they're very vague on, on, again, they do not know how it works, but they have some hints that it might be related, you know, to rapid eye movement when we sleep, which is, which is part of what we do when we sleep is we process the day's events. Um, they don't, they don't really know. They're, they're, they're sort of grasping at this point, but, um, modern therapists tend to use either, um, earphones with a, with a beeping on, in your left and right ear, and that will sort of trigger your eye movement. Or I use these sort of buzzing, vibrating pods that I held in my hands. And when one would vibrate, my eyes would just naturally go that way. And so you set the rhythm and the speed. And, uh, and then you, you do these sessions where you, you know, have your eyes closed and your, your eyeballs kind of rotating back and forth behind your eyelids while you discuss your experiences with a therapist who walks you through the process. It sounds really weird. It and does, it was yeah. really weird. Yeah. <laughs> It was really weird. It was a weird experience. That my, it might be my favorite quote in the whole book is, is um, a woman who underwent EMDR after surviving the Oklahoma City bombing. And she said EMDR was the strangest thing she had experienced in her life with the exception of the bomb. Huh. <laughs> and I thought that was so great um, because it was, it was a truly bizarre experience. But, but it, it, uh, the idea in the roughest terms is that something about therapy combined with the eye movement allows these traumatic memories to be sort of filed correctly so that they're no longer, you know, people, people talk about trauma, they talk about intrusive memories and it does, it feels like they're sticking out into your present from, from your past in a way that they shouldn't be like a, like they've got their foot in a doorway and they won't let you close it or something. Um, and so the idea is to get that foot out of the door and close the door. Of course, I still remember my car accidents, of course, but they don't, um, they don't sort of, uh, fill my mind, uh, unbidden when I'm driving anymore. They've, they've been sort of put away where they belong. So EMDR worked for you. It did it 100%, which is, uh, not the case for everyone. Um, again, there's a bunch of different trauma therapies and different people react differently to different ones. Uh, but it, but it worked, you know, it worked for me <laughs> for which I'm grateful. PTSD is, is most commonly associated with, with soldiers who are coming back from a war. And I've even heard of, uh, they're doing experiments in like hallucinogenic type therapies. Mm-hmm. Um, does EMDR work for, for war related PTSD? Has it been used on soldiers and returning soldiers quite a bit? It definitely has. Yeah. And I think it has been effective for at least some of them, depending on sort of who you talk to, you hear about, um, effectiveness rates between 60 and 80%. Um, so I, I'm, you know, we've seen a huge growth in PTSD therapies in the last 10, 20 years, partly because of our various ongoing wars and, um, well, in large part because of our various ongoing wars, I would say. And, and I don't have stats on how many soldiers have, have undergone EMDR, but it is one of the leading trauma therapies now. So I would guess that it's a high number and I, I would guess that it's working for, a sizable chunk of them. That's really interesting because I, until I read your book, I didn't even, I hadn't even heard of EMDR. And, you know, going back to the idea of soldiers and, and, and training soldiers to deal with the fears that naturally are, are a part of war, you do talk about mm-hmm. the idea of fear, fearlessness and how it serves us. And of course, you said that um, fearlessness is, is not actually the best thing, you know, to, to occupy a soldier's consciousness when he's in battle because decision making flows out of certain fear processes. But you do bring up 
the idea of uh, of uh, Alex Honnold, is that his name? The the the, the guy who yeah. started in Free Solo, and then you also have uh, this patient S M, who who's very interesting, who sort of had a medical condition to her brain that made her less susceptible to fear. So let's start with with uh, with the rock climber. Um, is he fearless? Is Alex Honnold, who did Free Solo, uh, who climbed, if I'm not mistaken, without ropes up Yosemite, is is he fearless or does fear yeah. play a role in, in what he did? He is not truly fearless. No, ultimately he does feel fear. What, um, and he has, you know, put himself in MRI machines for scientists to study his brain, and and uh, because he certainly reacts to fear differently than the rest of us. And I think what they are suspecting at this point is that he has a different trigger point than most of us for fear. Um, you know, I would be, I would be afraid from the first step of his climb up free solo. I mean, I wouldn't make it past the second step, both in terms of physical ability and emotional (laughs) composure. But, um, uh, he, he is not, he's the closest thing to fearless in kind of ordinary life that, that I could think of, which is, which is why I put him in the, in the book. Um, but he, he has a, a normal, a normally functioning brain with all the all the pieces of the fear response apparatus he just it just doesn't seem to swing into motion for him as easily as it does for the rest of us in in certain contexts in specifically in the context of of climbing up things right he he feels fear ordinarily in other scenarios i've heard him give interviews where he talks about some other fairly normal kind of outdoor sport and he's like oh that sounds scary (laughs) um so you know he's He's and so that's one thing they don't understand is has he trained himself to be this calm when he's rock climbing just through years and years of work or or does he have a natural ability to stay calm that's sort of built in or some combination of the two I would I would bet on a combination because that's that's sort of usually how these things go but he's a really interesting guy I guess that's always a question with with athletes and, and rock climbers are very much athletes in their own way. You know, there's the idea is is a champion bicycle racer have bigger lungs, for example, or does a mm-hmm. um, does a football player have a different skull construction? And so does it does it seem like it's maybe a, a combination that they, they haven't discovered a, a special part of Alex Honnold's brain for for rock climbing? No, they haven't. All they were able to do was confirm that sort of the apparatus is all functioning. Um, yeah. So they, I, I would imagine they'll continue to study him through his life. And I don't know if he'll donate his brain to science or what, when he get when he, when he gets old, but, uh, um, they haven't been able to isolate anything different about him specifically that I know of, uh, anyway, that, that makes him stay so calm. Uh, they just seem to find that his amygdala doesn't doesn't fire as rapidly as mine would say. Well, again, I, again, I keep thinking of a science fiction story where they isolate what works in his brain in mm-hmm. his amygdala, and then they 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 implant it in in into athletes or soldiers or something. Now, you, right. speaking of the amygdala, patient S M had was sort of I don't know if genetically or somehow was like medically had an amygdala that was affected in such a way that she didn't feel fear in the same way that normal people do. So could you explain what happened to her and how that manifested itself? Right. She has a really, really rare disease that um, calcifies portions of your brain. And in her case, her disease calcified her amygdala over a number of years, starting from when she was a child, uh, and it, in the end now, her, that portion of her brain is, is 
is essentially offline with with virtually perfect margins. Uh, it's it's sort of unheard of. You know, there, there's other cases of amygdalas that have been partially calcified by this disease, um, but hers is sort of perfectly done, if that makes sense. And so, what they have in her is an example of essentially what it'd be like if you had no amygdala at all. Um, she can remember being afraid before her um, before the damage to her brain became so complete, but she hasn't felt. Um, with a couple of exceptions that I get into in the book, she hasn't felt what you or I would think of as fear in, in several decades. Um, and that's with scientists trying very hard to, to, to have her have a fear reaction, but, uh, but she essentially doesn't have an amygdala. And so she can't trigger that typical fear reaction. Well, again, we have this, this science fiction scenario uh, where, you know, a certain race of humans is, is given that condition, but I suspect there are negatives to having no fear. What has she encountered uh, in, in, that we might be that we might consider a negative effect of the condition of her amygdala? Right. It has unfortunately, you know, it hasn't made her uh, a superhero. It has it has led to her having a really hard life um, because we we need fear uh, to help keep us safe, and she has virtually no sense of self-preservation whatsoever. Um, you know, I, I sort of breaks my heart to read about her. She's, she's been abused. She's been assaulted. Um, she's had a, a series of horrible exploitative relationships. Um, uh, she's, you know, she's not great with money because if you don't have a sense of consequences, how do you, you know, it's, it's, uh, she's had a really, a really, really tough life. Um, and that's, and you know, the, the comparison is when we think about fearlessness as something to prize, uh, a scientist in the fifties, I think, or sixties, um, he, uh, removed the amygdalas from a bunch of monkeys and released them into the wild. And they were all dead within two weeks. Hmm. So it's actually a really dangerous thing to try to live without fear. It's, um, you know, fear is, is essential to our, to our survival program, essentially. And, uh, and that's part of why irrational fears are so hard to overcome because our fear system is really hardwired into our bodies to keep us alive. And so it's, it's hard when it's, when it's, even when it's misfiring, it's hard to sort of take it offline, if that makes sense. Yeah. Is, is there a silver lining in this that for all of the way fears complicate our lives, that our fears actually keep us alive and safe and, and healthy in a sense? Definitely. Yeah. It's not something that we would want to wish away from our lives. I think ultimately it's as frustrated as I have been with my fears sometimes. It's uh, uh, we wouldn't want the alternative, I don't think. <laughs> Yeah. Well, actually, the, the, you, you mentioned a treatment um, through a, a, a Dr. Kent, I believe, in Amsterdam, and you bring in the metaphor uh, from the movie The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where this treatment, in a sense, has some parallels to that. And if people don't remember that movie, that's where the Jim Carrey character basically has his memories erased so that he doesn't have to deal with the trauma of a negative or uh, of a painful relationship. And you actually went to Amsterdam to undergo this treatment. So how does this, what is this treatment? How does it work? And how did you get involved with it? And, and how did it, how did it change things for you? Right. Yeah. So I first read about it in the new Republic. I think it was written about a few years ago. Um, it's 
the idea is it's a, a treatment for fear in a single pill, um, which sounds again, extremely sci-fi. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it doesn't erase your fear memories, but the idea is that it sort of disconnects them. Again, it's, it's similar to what EMDR was trying to achieve with sort of putting my fear memories away where they belong. So it, it started with a neuroscientist figuring out. Um, so we knew that when we, when we transition our sort of day-to-day experiences into long-term memory storage, we, the, our brain utilizes a, a protein synthesis process to do that. That's part of sort of filing them away in storage. And there was some neuroscience that had suggested that, uh, you know, a beta blocker that, that blocks that protein synthesis could prevent, could sort of create temporary amnesia in rats and prevent the, uh, the protein synthesis from occurring and thus prevent the long-term memory storage. And what this, this uh, uh, scientist, Kareem Nader, figured out is that protein synthesis is also involved in, in restoring memories after we've called them up. So if you, if you pull up your old memories from storage and you sort of take them out and look at them as we do sometimes, and then you put them away again, um, the protein synthesis process is involved again. So what Dr. Kent took from that is that she thought if I can disrupt the protein synthesis during the reconsolidation of the memories during the, the, you know, the putting them away again process, I can sever the connection between the experiences and the fear memories and, and resolve people's phobias. That was her, her theory. And it, so she uses a really common beta blocker, propranolol, um, which people will be familiar with from things like uh, people take it for, you know, stage fright and that kind of thing. It just sort of lowers your heart rate. It basically is my, is my very, you know, very some deep, deep summarized understanding of it. Uh, you're not allowed to take it if you already have low blood pressure. <laughs> um, but, uh, and it's this, it's this simple, common, already existing pill, but she, she, has a process of triggering your triggering your fear, calling up your fear memories, and then giving you this pill. And the idea is that then you'll be liberated from your, your phobia. Uh, and she's had very, very shockingly good results um, uh, so far. Uh, it works better with specific phobias of things like mice or rats or spiders or, um, you know, the sort of typical phobias. She has been working to develop it for PTSD as well. And it works less well because trauma is often um, linked to a more complex web of memories, I would say. And so it's harder to kind of isolate and sever that tie, Um, which is one reason why all therapies for trauma are complicated, including something like EMDR is the more complex the trauma memories are, the harder they are to to sort of work your way through. Hmm. Um, but so yeah, I went to Amsterdam and I and I underwent this this treatment for my again trying again to to resolve my fear of heights. Um, and uh, it was pretty a pretty uh, wild experience. Again, all these things just feel so strange while they're happening to you. Um, and uh, I I uh, I don't know if I want to say too much about exactly what she what she did to me, but uh, um, uh, it was it uh, it was fascinating and again i would say at least a partial success for me and there was a film crew there right was did that complicate things it, was. it did yeah i uh, i had agreed to be filmed um by a canadian 
science documentary show while I was there. They were looking for Canadian subjects, and it happened it happened completely coincidentally that they had already been booked to be in Amsterdam the week that I booked my appointment. So I agreed to be filmed, and uh, I probably shouldn't have agreed to be filmed. Hmm. I I already knew that when I'm afraid, having onlookers makes it worse. Um, you know, when I've been rock climbing with trusted friends, I'm less self-conscious and thus less kind of embarrassed to get scared and then less likely to panic as opposed to if there are strangers around, then my panic seems to get worse because I'm embarrassed. And, you know, these, these cycles of, of feelings that we have of, you know, embarrassment and shame and, and all that stuff. Um, and so the film crew's presence did complicate things. Yeah, I was, I was concerned for a while actually that their being there had, had ruined my treatment. I don't think that was the case in the end, but it was, um, it was an unpleasant experience. I would say an unpleasant aspect of the experience was, was having these people kind of, kind of badgering me to talk about how I was feeling when I didn't, when I didn't want to. And, and it was tough because I had agreed to it, but then I ended up feeling like, like I hadn't really been able to set boundaries, um, which was, an interesting part of the experience, I guess, and, and, um, something to learn from for myself as a journalist as well. You know, I, I, I don't ever want somebody who agrees to let me watch a sensitive medical procedure to regret it the way I did. Hmm. Um, so I, I hope that that was a, a lesson for me and, and, uh, uh, maybe a lesson for them too, when they read my book, we'll see. <laughs> right. Well, you talk about the cycle of fear. Is there an extent to which fear of fear complicates fear itself? If that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a huge part of it, at least for me. Uh, once I understood that I could have these kind of powerful fear reactions, I became very afraid of having them. And that's part of it, right? Is, you know, you're, you're hiking or you're, if somebody else experiences something, you know, with bridges, say, or elevators is, is the anticipation and the anxiety around, am I going to panic? Am I going to embarrass myself? Am I going to cause a scene? This is going to feel horrible. Um, yeah, the the fear of fear is 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 part of what we have to untangle, I think, because sometimes that's all that's all there is to it. Sometimes the the real fear never arrives, but you've already worked yourself into a state of of uh, crisis. <laughs> huh? H- have you heard of narrative therapy? I haven't. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Hala Alyan earlier this season about narrative therapy, where basically you she works with uh, oftentimes with immigrants who experience trauma of displacement. Um, but it's the idea of refining the story you tell yourself, that it's basically folding your trauma. And I, I, I'm sorry if I'm not quoting this exactly perfectly, um, but folding your trauma into a way that makes sense. When you when you brought up uh, some of the other treatments, like EMDR, talking about filing these mm-hmm. traumas in a certain way, it made me think of narrative therapy. That makes sense. I think a lot of this is about the stories we tell ourselves to an extent, Um you know, once, once I was telling myself I'm a person who panics in certain height situations, then I became very afraid of panicking in those height situations. Hmm. And I, I, I don't think that just telling myself I'm not that person anymore would have been enough to fix it, but it's certainly part of it is, is, um, is about, is about how we sort of conceive of ourselves. And that's one thing that Dr. Kent has found with her, with her propranolol treatments is that the people that she cures, sometimes it takes them several months to sort of start telling that, to say, I'm, I'm cured. I'm a person who is cured. It, they, their, their physiological fear reactions vanish immediately 
but it takes a while for the story that they tell about themselves to catch up to their new reality. They would still say, I'm afraid of mice for, for three or four months, even though they're no longer reacting to mice the way they used to. And it, and it takes them a while to relearn who they are, if that makes sense. That's that's really interesting, and I'm you know there, there's this there's this mindset, especially in the West, that the that the that the best possible solution would be a pill that just makes things go away. Um, is mm-hmm. that is that what she is about to accomplish? Will there be a pill that will that will cure certain kinds of fear? And, and like, has it been approved? Is it something we can go to the store and pick up in a few years' time? Well. I'm- the pill alone doesn't do the job. A big part of it is her triggering. It doesn't work unless you trigger the memories correctly. Hmm. Um, and so it won't ever be something we can do on our own. I don't think in its current form, but, um, it's definitely something that she, you know, she's, she's seen clients from, I don't know, a dozen countries now, at least probably it's, it's definitely a growing. And I, I imagine it's only a matter of time before other people are adopting her method. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, you want to you want to push back against the idea that it's as simple as a single pill. And of course, it's not as simple as the pill. It is all about um, triggering those memories in the correct way to, to sort of bring them to the fore and then and then do the do the refiling thing and have it be disrupted by the pill. But, um, yeah, it's, it, it does seem too good to be true, but it it, uh, it seems to be working. So it's, it's it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Definitely. Well, I'm curious to know what we can leave people with because, you know, I'm sure that there's a whole spectrum of among listeners of what kind of fear they experience. It could be it could be full-blown PTSD type fears, it could be existential fears which we all experience, or, or it could be other categories of of fear entirely. So, for people who are, you know, wrapping their head around this sort of thing, what might you tell them to start dealing with and confronting their fears? Mm-hmm. Two things. One is that I think people should be hopeful that they can make more change than they realize um, in terms of their relationship to their fears. I made far more sort of headway in in overcoming my fears through this project than I expected to. But the other thing is that it's it's okay to be afraid. You know, it's 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 not something we admit to all the time. It's there's some there's some shame and embarrassment wrapped up in it, but my biggest takeaway from this project has been how many people um, are living with fears that they might consider weird or embarrassing or, you know, and, and it's just, it's just normal. Everybody, everybody has these things. And so I, I think even if you can't overcome them to the extent that you might want to, uh, it's okay to just, to just sort of accept that they're a part of your life. And then, and then when, if you can reach a place of that acceptance, then that fear of being afraid peace starts to come away from it. And that, that helps with peace of mind too. So I, I guess I would say that, that there's, there's room to tackle this stuff, but there's also room to just accept it, um, as being a part of your life and, 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 uh, and, you know, and remind yourself that it's the reason why we're all still alive. <laughs> this has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Eva Holland's book, Nerve Adventures in the Science of Fear can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviatrolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm-hmm.